go ahead and open that up. We're going to pick up in verse 37. I'm going to read the 37 and 38 all the way to the end of the chapter. We went through those two verses last week, but I'm going to go ahead and just cover them again just to be thorough. So Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Follow along with the water. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perfect generation. So then those who had received his words were baptized. And they that day were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and his prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were dividing them up with all, as anyone might have need. And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread, house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the number daily those who were being saved. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for having this place to come together and to hear from you. Um, I pray for forgiveness of that microphone. It knows not what it does, literally. Please help my mind tonight. Um, I'm tired. I don't feel like I have anything to say except just Jesus' help. May the people here tonight minister to you through your word, that I wouldn't pollute your gospel message with any of my preferences or opinions, but would only share what it is that you have written here in your word through your spirit to us, your people. We trust you with all things. We love you, Jesus. Please can convince and to come and comfort your people tonight. Minister to them in whatever way it is that they, that they need. You know that you know how many errors are in each individual's head. So we trust you. Please speak to us. In the name of the Jesus. Amen. So I have never, this is so awkward. I have never preached like this before. I'm just gonna own it. I'm just gonna act like I do it every day. We are continuing in Acts chapter 2. What we're right in the middle of, I know that I cut last week short when we preached on those two verses 37 and 38, but what we're right smack in the middle of is an event from, of which no human being ever born can ever escape. We're dealing with the repercussions of Jesus Christ's life. God coming into human flesh, the Word who was always existing in all eternity, the Word who was with God, the Word that was God, became flesh and dwelt with us, tabernacle amongst us here on earth for the stated reason of seeking and saving that which is lost, which is us, which is sinners. Jesus Christ was born a human being, God became flesh, truly God and truly man simultaneously. And his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection are the utmost truth, the utmost fact of all of human history. He came to save us from the ramifications of sin, which is eternal hell. Separation from him and out of darkness with his weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's no other salvation, there's no other name, there's no other hope besides Jesus Christ 
Acts chapter 4 says that there is no other name given among men and women by which they must be saved. Jesus Christ himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is it. And so whether we are with Jesus or not with Jesus, we can't escape what he's done. We can't escape his work. We are either in his family or we are out of his family. And this is very important and it's very heavy on this text because of who Peter is preaching to, who it is that Peter is sharing this gospel with. Jesus has ascended back into heaven to the right hand side of the Father. That ascension was a victory. It was a declaration that his kingdom has come and it will one day be consummated and it will have no ending. He is the Son of Man in Daniel 7 who ascended to the right hand of the Father and took his rightful place on the throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. We get to be a part of that kingdom under the covering of his blood and that is the only way that we can get in because his, his standard for heaven is perfection and all of us fall dreadfully short. I'm, I'm reading I just started reading this morning Josh White's new book, and I, and I like some of the terminology that he uses. The first chapter is called The Cross of Judgment and Forgiveness, because on the cross you see God's need as a righteous, just, holy, perfect God to punish sin. You look at Jesus on the cross and you see a man being punished, not for his sin, but for ours. And because he's being punished for our sin and not his own sin, that is the cross of judgment, and it is the cross of forgiveness. The cross of judgment and the cross of grace. Both simultaneously true. Sin has to be punished because God loves us and refuses to live in eternity without us. He gives us the cross. He takes the punishment of sin upon himself. And so here is the reality from which no human being can escape. No human being ever born can get out from underneath of this. This is the reality that we must face. And the people here in Acts chapter 2 are brought to indictment. They are confronted with this reality boldly. Peter declares to them that they are the ones who killed Jesus. He, states, he said it in verse 22. You yourselves know this man who you put on the cross. Verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified. He doesn't, he doesn't move around them. He doesn't try to make them feel good. He doesn't try to avoid offending them or making them angry. By diluting the truth. He says the cold hard facts. He, he confronts them with it. And that's really an act of grace. And it's, a, it's an act of grace that we need. We're not going to care about. I don't think that anybody in this room would argue with the fact that Portland is not a place where anybody is worried about having forgiveness. Nobody here thinks they need grace. In our fallen nature, we elevate self. We do whatever makes us feel good. We eat, drink, and be married. For tomorrow we die. And in the words of Billy Eilish, you're going to be dead tomorrow. So screw it. No one's going to remember you. Do whatever you want. You can do the most horrific thing, and no one's going to remember you in 100 years. You can do the most awesome thing, no one's going to remember in 100 years. And that's Billie Eilish's idea. She loves that. That there's never going to be any ramification. And so people just do whatever they want. They don't think they need forgiveness. They don't think that they need propitiation. They don't think that they need grace. They certainly don't think that they, that they need to repent of anything. But the cold, hard facts of the universe is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. And we need His grace. We need His love. We need the cross. Nobody gets away from this. And Peter confronts the people of Pentecost that are there gathered for the feast with the hard facts. And their response is, what must we do? They were pierced to the heart. This is what we looked at last week. They were pierced to the heart when they heard this. And they said, men and brothers, 
What should we do? And that's the most important question in human history. What must we do? It's a, it's a grace. It's telling that they even asked that question. That their response was to say, I hear, what, I hear what you're communicating, and I'm struck by it. I'm scared. Something's not right. I need to do something about this. What is it? What must we do? This most important question is even more greatly emphasized by the fact that the very ones who are asking it are some of the same people who cried out for Jesus' blood, said, give us Barabbas, that murderer and that insurrectionist, and take that perfect Jesus, that perfect holy Jesus who never did anything but help people, and kill him. Some of the same people are now here realizing their sin, realizing their mistake, and they're asking, what must we do? And so Zechariah 12.10 is even more fully brought to fruition whenever it says that they, they will look up on the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. And here are some of the people who pushed Jesus into the crowd that killed him, pierced him, and now they're mourning the reality and they're asking, what must we do? Peter is speaking to enemies and I think that it's good for us to, to live in this tension. It's good for us as Christians to actually present this tension to people and we don't do it. We pretend like everything's fine, you can take Jesus or you can leave him, it's no big deal because we don't want to hurt people's feelings, we don't want to ruffle any feathers, but Jesus promises, listen, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Jesus is the most benevolent, kind, loving person to ever walk the earth, and Luke 4, and as soon as he goes back to his hometown, the people there, they grew up with him, try to throw him off the cliff because he says the book of Isaiah was written about him. As Christians, we're called to actually be quite offensive, but for all of the right reasons. We're not to be we're not to be bullies, we're not to be vindictive or cruel or judgmental. We're supposed to tell people about the love of Christ, and that in and of itself is offensive. What must we do? Peter is speaking to people who the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 are children of wrath, enemies. We're, we're naturally born children of wrath, and there's quite a long list here. Ephesians chapter 2 says we're children of wrath. Rebellious, arrogant, proud, presumptuous, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's Romans chapter 1. That's quite a list. And I know that whenever a preacher gets up and starts saying things like this, it can make, the, it can make whatever's in your stomach start to churn. It can make your blood boil. We don't like hearing this. But if we don't understand this, then whenever somebody preaches a sermon like Peter preaches, we're going to go, whatever. I don't care. I don't need grace. I don't need forgiveness. I like to be my own God. I like to dictate for myself what is right and what is wrong. And I don't need anybody to tell me otherwise. Friends, in love, let me tell you that that is a lie from the devil. It's maybe the greatest lie that you ever told. A, that you don't need God. And B, that the God who does exist is a jerk. He's a level. He's a type A taskmaster. You would do your best to just avoid him. Both of those are lies. And in God's sovereignty, he he opened up the eyes and the hearts of these people who had cried out for Jesus' blood. And their response to him is, what must we do? Their response to Peter is, what must we do? And the reason why I'm opening up this sermon like this is because I want us to feel this tension. I want us to try to go back in our mind's eye to 2,000 plus years ago when Peter's publicly declaring this to a crowd of maybe thousands and thousands of people. And feel like this is not, this doesn't feel optimistic. This isn't really an uplifting moment. It feels lost. It feels like there's no hope. I mean, Peter had just quoted from Psalms 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
that these people who cry out for Jesus' blood must be thinking, we're the enemies. We're the fulfillment of Psalms 10. There's no hope. What can we do? And what if Peter had said, there's nothing. There is no hope. You cried out for Jesus' blood. He was here for 33 years. The last three of those, he was healing you. He was casting out demons. He was feeding you. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He turned water into wine. That was a crowd favorite. And yet they still pushed him over the precipice to the cross. What must we do? But Peter does not say nothing. Peter does not say that hope is lost. Peter does not say there's nothing that you can do. You are without hope in the world. He tells us to repent. He tells them to repent. He brings up the fear of the Lord. He brings up their depravity. He shows them their sin. And without that, there's no need for us as a people to, to think that we need a Savior. We need to be shown our sin. I mean, Jesus himself, one of my favorite Bible verses is in Luke 4. Jesus says, do not fear, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that. It means that God is blessed to enter, to, to welcome children into his kingdom. He loves to do it. But in that same chapter, Luke 12, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body and have nothing that they can do. He's very specific. He says, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who once he has killed you has afforded to cast you into hell. Yes, indeed, I tell you, fear him. And this fear, this need for a savior, this helplessness is the very first thing that Peter brings to the surface. And I love that. Because these guys realize that something is wrong. They realize their sin. And that A, shows them that they need a Savior. And B, shows them just how magnificent of a Savior Jesus is. And just how powerful His grace is. It's a great and amazing grace that in this moment is actually beginning to unfold with this question, what must we do? Repent. Believe the gospel. Verse 37 and 38. Be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the place, again, where I'm quoting Josh White. I love this. Josh White writes in his book that this place, this reality of the cross, is the place where sin and curse is revealed and then reversed. That's the good news of the gospel. The, the curse of sin is revealed. It's shown. You see Jesus' mutilated body on the cross. There is the revelation of sin. Our sin. My sin. Your sin. But then it's reversed because it's Jesus taking the punishment of that. It is great grace. And that great grace is going to manifest here as Peter continues to declare to these people what it is that they must do and what is the, the magnificent hope that lies before them. He says, you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit, verse 38. And I want to just take a moment there to distinguish between the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit. Peter isn't referring in this moment to the gift of healing and, and, and rising, raising people from the dead and speaking in tongues and, and all those things. Those, those things have their place. But what Peter is talking about here in this moment is the actual person of God's Spirit, the miracle of the, the regenerating power that is the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Colossians 1.27 says that this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, Christ wrote, Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. The Bible says the power that he's in me. He's in us through the power of the Spirit. God the Spirit regenerates our hearts, gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, gives us affection 
for the Lord reveals to us that we are sinners who have been walking away from God and that we need to repent and repurpose our lives towards Him. All of that is the work of the Holy Spirit. All of that is the work that causes us to be affectionately obedient to the living Christ instead of mechanically dutiful on, in the hopes that we will earn His favor. Jesus comes and says, you, you can't earn it, I will do it for you. And so our response in love is to say, I, I want to do the things that you want me to do. And the things that I want to do, I actually don't want to do this. I still feel the urge to do them, but I want to, I want to push that away. I want to deny the flesh. This is how this all begins. Our affection is turned to the Holy Christ. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Part of the gift of the Holy Spirit is this, this magnificent salvation, this regeneration that He continues to work in our lives. But that's for another sermon. So, verse 39. By the way, because that microphone messed up, I left my phone over there. I don't have a timer. We're going to be over here. I'm going to try to try to not be here all night. So, I just want to let you know. So, verse 39. Peter continues. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I can't help but hear the words of Matthew 27 screaming into this, into this verse. This promise is for you and your children. Matthew 27 is where the people cried out. Pontius Pilate white washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd cried out and said, let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. So great is this grace of Jesus. So great is this love that even the people who cried out for his blood, now this promise is for you. This promise is for them, for you and for your children. That's an amazing reality. That should comfort us. Because one, another one of the devil's real good lies is that you're beyond saving, that you're so gross and sinful and mutinous and malevolent and all the rest that God's just done. He's given up. He tried and he just weren't worth it. So he's hung up his towel. He's moved on to other people and you're left to fend for yourself for all eternity. That is a lie from hell. The very people who cried out for Jesus' blood are here being offered the gift of God's Spirit coming alive inside of them. His grace is greater than our sin. We cannot be beyond saved. While there is breath in our lungs, we can come to Jesus. And the thief on the cross only had a few hours left to live, and yet he cried out to Jesus, and Jesus promised him, today you will be with me in paradise. This will be for you and for your children and all who are far off. All who are far off is all generations till the end of the world. Far off geographically and far off in time. This is about a world evangelism. This era of the church and redemptive history is continuing. God the Spirit coming down. Christ has ascended and now we, his people, are spreading the gospel to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And as Peter is preaching this, it's interesting. When you, when you read the early sermons of Peter, but then watch his life throughout the book of Acts, you see that he's fantastically human. Because the things that he preaches, he still struggles with. And unfortunately, Peter's problem, again and again, is one of, of racial preference. He's got a bit of a racist problem. He doesn't, he doesn't think that the Gentiles are really well into the kingdom. He knows it's true, and he preaches it. He says, you who are far off. But then when it comes down to it, he still struggles greatly. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle tunes Peter up. Peter's having lunch with some Gentiles, and then some Jewish people show up, and Peter distances. He doesn't want to be thought of. 
And Paul tunes him right up to forget the gospel, man. Jesus came because God's Spirit unites all of us. No, no, more, no longer is there Jew and Greek and Gentile and slave and free and male and female. We each have our distinct identities, but we are unified as children of God by the power of His Spirit. You need to stop being a bigot. You need to stop treating people like that. Oh, that's a lot. What time is it? We'll see what happens. Thank you, Alphonse. So he still struggles with this. You see, when we get to Acts chapter 10, you're going to see, I mean, the Lord has to use a vision, to show, a miraculous vision to show Peter that the gospel is for the whole world. And even still, he, he rolls into Cornelius' house and he's like, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm supposed to be here, but I don't really want to be, so let's take this quick. I'm going to tell you about the gospel. Cornelius gets it. Peter struggles with this. He's very human, but the Lord still uses him mightily in this moment. Those who are far off. He calls them to himself. All who are far off, you and your children, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. This is a continuation of the idea we looked at last week that God is sovereign and he does what he does. We are also responsible as human beings, not only in our salvation, but even in just the things that went down. Peter said that it was the it was a foreknowledge of God. It was predetermined that he would go to the cross and that you are the ones who actually crucified him. In verse 21 of Peter's sermon, it says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then in verse 39, it says, As many as the Lord God will call to himself. Anyone who calls on the Lord will be saved, but it's also those who the Lord calls to himself. And this has been a fist fight in church history for as long as the church has had a history. And there's, I don't know what the answer is, friends. There is a, there's a dilemma here. And I think that the, the men and women who, who bang their fists on it and say, this is how it is. God has to call you and there's nothing you can do or say about it. You're just going to be willed into his, into his sovereign grace, into his sovereign heaven. The Bible, the Bible makes it very clear that there's plenty of people who refuse Jesus' offer. He even pleads with them in John 10. Just... Look at the miracles. If you don't give a hard time to the things that I'm saying, look at the miracles. And they said, no. They said, no. But he also does fall. John, John 6 says, Peter said, Jesus says that anyone who comes to me has to be drawn to me. The math doesn't make sense. The Lord calls people to him. We cry out and call to the Lord. I don't know how the mechanics of God's sovereignty works. His ways are higher than our ways. But what I do know is that when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, says, repent and keep in heaven is at hand, that's a command. We don't even know how everything works. We just need to trust Him that, that it's good and that it's perfect and that it's beyond our intellect. It's beyond our, our earthly arithmetic to understand how He does what He does. And what's even more fascinating to, to me personally is that that mystery, as mysterious as it is, as mysterious as God's sovereignty is, and his dying on the cross, and that's, that that record is given to us when we put our faith in him as Lord and Savior, that mystery, mysterious as it is, is still illuminated. We don't understand everything, but we understand enough. There's no other name or name by which you must be saved or repent. Turn to him and away from yourself and trust him with everything. Even when things go wrong, trust him. Things went wrong for him. Everything was coming together. His cross was not defeat. His cross was victory. Him hanging on the cross was him completely in control, doing what needed to be done, bringing about the greatest good for all of mankind. 
So even when we are suffering, He is still sovereign. He's still able. He's still trusted. And however it is that this, this mystery of God's sovereignty plays out step by step, we'll never know. But you see that He's good enough to trust Him in the process. Cry out to Him. Believe in Him. Repent. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness, verse 40, and he kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, this crooked generation. And this is, a, this is another thing that Peter is going to point out step by step. Is we, when, when a pastor like Peter says something like crooked generation, we, that's another thing that we recoil at. Because we don't like to think of people as being evil or, or wrong. In, in a great sense. You know, it's pretty easy to cut off traffic and to curse somebody. But to think that humanity is actually evil, and maybe misguided, maybe a little inept, maybe a little unwise, but, but evil, that, that we, we feel like that's taking a step too far. But this, again, is just getting real with our situation. What Peter is saying here is actually exactly what Jesus himself said in, multitude, in, in multiple places. In Matthew 12 and in Matthew 16, Jesus says, this evil and adulterous generation. Luke 11 says, this wicked generation. Mark chapter 8, this adulterous and sinful generation. Matthew chapter 5, though, he, he says, love your enemies. Is the world evil? Have we fallen short of the glory of God? Now, there, are there no, none who do good, no, not one, as the Bible says. Yes, that's absolutely true. And yet, because that we're talking about a magnificent grace, an amazing grace, that song is rightly titled, an amazing grace, Jesus didn't just flick us into a black hole. He put on human flesh and he entered this suffering. And he showed us so much love. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, which means that while we're enemies of God, we, we know what it is to be sacrificed for, even as enemies. We did not earn our way into heaven. We didn't even do 10% and make God go, okay, good enough, I'll do the rest. It's all an act of grace. And in response to that, my prayer is that we, the Dorfolk as a whole, would be full of individuals who more and more and more progressively understand with a palpable sense, a weighty sense, the grace that they have been shown, the love that they have received, and if they go out into the world and, and emulate that. We're called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. It's a hard thing to do, but whenever we actually see our depravity and what God has done for us, it is the natural response. Even when we're saved, we still can be evil people. Jesus said it's a flood. I think of it as a drive-by shooting. Because he just he says it real quick and casually, but it's a magnificent statement in Matthew 7. Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father who is in heaven. Notice, he says, you're, you're still evil. You still do evil deeds, but God is, is your Father. This is what Luther cried out. When Luther finally understood the gospel, he cried out in Latin, simultaneously sinner and justified. That's an amazing grace. It doesn't require any sort of work, any sort of ritual, any sort of discipline. It's an act of grace. He died for us. We still continue to sin, and He still continues to show His grace. His grace is new every morning, and the result of that should be a loving of those who are outside the church, outside of God's 
sovereign grace outside of the outside of the body. It says be saved from this crooked generation. And I'll just I'll just say this note real quick. Because Peter is going to make this point again. That we're called to go out into the world. This, there's a lot of doctrine that is, that is written about this reality. The result of, of teachings like this, for some, is, okay, well, if the world is evil and people are wicked and they're adulterous and all the rest, then I think the best thing for me to do is to shave my head, wear a bathroom, and go hide out in the, in the case. Or to live inside a gated community. Or to separate myself in the desert. To get away from this gross, fleshly, worldly, corporeal environment, this moral coil. The best thing for me to do is to get alone with my God and hide away with my other ascetics and just die and live. Just live and die. I'm just going to get out of here. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He sends us into the world. The end of the Gospel of John is all about Peter telling, all about Jesus telling Peter, you've got to go to work. My rest, my resurrection is not rest and, and relaxation for you right now. You have the hope of that. Right now, you've got to get to work. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said to pray to the Father, he said, I, as you have sent me into the world, I send them into the world. We are to be a people of people. We're to be showing it up, We're to be in the market, and in the cities, and in the places where people are telling them about Jesus. We're not supposed to, to, to hibernate and to separate, cut ourselves off from society in some, in some act of act of self-preservation. We're supposed to get in with people and show them the love of Jesus and the way that we preach, the way that we share the gospel, and the very things that we do. But simultaneously, the Bible warns us greatly about becoming too entangled with the world. It's in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked. Listen, listen to this. 2 Corinthians it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteous and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What Paul's saying there is not to, again, not to separate. Not that we don't have anything in common, just in a sense of you like this music, I like that music, we both work in the same place. But that there's supposed to be a degree of separation because we cannot unify ourselves in a relational sense or in a business sense with unbelievers because it gets messy. And if you're a Christian here tonight and you work in, a, in, a, in an environment that is surrounded by non-believers, you know, you know how hard it would be to not just skirt, to not just push Jesus under the rug and go, well, never, never mind my faith and my Lord. I'm going to go ahead and, and hang out with the crowd. I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple of examples. This is a silly one, but it was the first one that came to mind. When I was, for those of you who don't know, I had not always been a Bible guy, a Jesus guy, and I certainly had not always been a pastor. I've been a pastor for a very short amount of time. The bulk of my adult life was spent in trades out on the high-rise buildings doing glass work with a bunch of very, very rough, crass, crude men. And I remember showing up with I, I became a Christian and, and I started walking with the Lord in 2010. And I remember being on a job site not too long after that. And one of actually my best buddies at the glass shop, we, we were at this job site down 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 the lower east end, and he grabbed me by the tree, he's like, hey man, it's breakfast, we're gonna get a cup of coffee. So I'm gonna get a cup of coffee, so we deal. And so I started walking out of the job site and I get to the curb and it's a bikini barista coffee spot. And he was stoked, you know. He was like, ah, bikini and coffee, it's the best combination. I was like, dude, I can't. 
I can't, I can't, like, I can't sign off on this. I can't, I can't support this. You're weird, bro. It's the keys and coffee, but I know. I can't, I can't sign up with this. I can't do this. I can't, I cannot affirm this with my money or with my presence. I, I feel bad. I can't do this. My Jesus doesn't want me buying coffee from a, from a woman who's wearing a bikini. And it's January. It's not even nice. It's not even funny. This is rude. I can't, I can't combine my life with you in that sense. We work together and we get along, but I can't enter into this relationship. There's so many things. You want to turn into business with somebody? Oh, dude, how easy would it be? You want to turn into business with a non-believer, and there's some sort of there's some sort of scheme, or there's some sort of system where you, you know what, bro, we could save ten thousand dollars a year in our taxes if we just skirt these numbers around just a little bit, just a little bit of dishonesty, then we'll we'll save major bank. You can't, you can't do it. It doesn't work. If you try to marry a non-believer, I mean, you know what that does to children. And I mean, I'm not trying to be rude or mean. Bible is warning us is that the only thing that can happen, and what does, what does light have to do with darkness? Peter says this crooked generation, we're just different people, we're supposed to love those people. But the Bible warns about integrating our lives too closely. I have, and I, and I know that there's situations where people get married, one of them becomes a Christian, one of them doesn't, and it's complex, and it's hard, but we're not to pursue a, a yoke, a, a shared burden of somebody who isn't revolving their every decision and thought around the person Jesus Christ. And I, and I really just have to pass it on him. If you're in the middle of that, I'm not trying to judge. I'm not trying to come down on you. But I know that it's hard. I know that it's hard. And, and Paul would, would warn us of that. And Peter would warn us of that. Be, be saved out of this. And then go right back in and try to fix it. Try to, try to help people. Preach the gospel. Show them love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't go out for vengeance. Don't, don't go out seeking to justify yourself. Don't go out looking to pick a fight or to accelerate a quarrel, but, but squash it by dying to self. If someone sues you for your tent, give them a cloak. Show people that you don't need to be justified, but you're actually out to help flourish relationships and individuals. And the way that believers and non-believers do that is very different. And so the Bible warns us again about, about getting too close. But moving on, I spent some time on that point. So then, verse 41. Those who had received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice it says that they received his word. This is so, this is so hard. It's so hard to talk about sin. It's so hard. To talk to people and tell them that there is a God who is just and is holy. And that we've fallen short of His righteousness and that we need a Savior. That is hard. It's not an easy thing to do. It's the most difficult thing about being a Christian. It's why so many Christians move to Texas. Because there, at least, it's not like, openly hated. It's not, it's not hate speech to say there's one Savior who's named Jesus. Here, that's hate speech. And it's so ironic because it's not, it's love. Well, how could there be only one way? That's stupid, it's closed-minded, it's narrow. The Bible says that it is narrow. The path is narrow that leads to life, and few find it. But the thing about Jesus, he is one, but he's so beautiful, and he's so powerful, and he's so big, that his invitation is universal to everyone. One Lord for everyone. And that's what Peter's struggling with. Even as he preaches it. 
But they received this word. They didn't argue. They didn't fight. They didn't throw anything at Peter. They did not get it. They didn't throw him in jail. Yet, that's coming. They didn't beat him in the street. Yet, that's also coming. They actually received his word. They heard what he had to say. They didn't try to correct him. They accepted it. 3,000 that day were saved. 3,000 people. That's 120 people to 3,000 in one sermon. That's that's multiplied by 26. That's a 20, it's 26 multiplied row. That's, that's pretty impressive. They received his word. They listened. And man, I just, I just wish, oh, I just pray that people in Portland would hear the gospel and not hate it. But that they would love it. They would fall in love with Jesus. Friends, pray for that. Pray that people in Portland would fall in love with Jesus. And so the 3,000 were saved in verse 42. They would continually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayers. Notice that they continue. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is something that, that I think is a, it's, it's a bit of a, of a pitfall for Christians. And it's largely, I think, the fault of pastors. Because pastors and church leadership and, and maybe teachers and professors and and maybe parents, but I'm going to blame pastors. Don't tell people that, listen, you, you come to know Jesus Christ. God the Spirit causes you to be alive. You're saved from your sins. You're, you're given this, the, the adoption of the Holy Spirit. That is a guarantee of the hope that you have for all eternity in Ephesians 1.14. But life is still hard. We're still given to depression. We're still given to, to, to unrest. We're still given to fear. We're still given to all sorts of illnesses and backsliding and bankruptcies and all sorts of upheavals. We're not immune to those things. And we can draw the conclusion that, well, I put my faith in Jesus, so why are things going better? Why am I still an emotional mess? Why are my relationships so messed up? What for? We have to continue in the Word. It's not an immediate fix. There are people, I know people who came to know Jesus, and there are certain aspects of their life, certain addictions or certain mindsets or certain bad habits that did just immediately get cleaned up. I'm not one of those people. I have been fighting every bad habit since the day I came to know the Lord hard because it wasn't just it wasn't just immediate. It wasn't easy. And I also have still had emotional day. I, I was I was so overrun by anxiety and self-hate monologue. And I and I some days I'm just like, why why do I still struggle with this? Why do I still wake up and the first thing in my mind is not Colossians 1, you are holy and blameless and above reproach. The first thing in my mind is you weren't patient enough, you said something you shouldn't have, you're weak, you're ugly, you've got this weird hairdo, nobody likes you, you should probably quit being a pastor and just go back to being a glass worker where you stand at everybody's way and you don't have to worry about misleading everybody because you're an idiot and you're an orphan and you're ugly and stupid and dumb again. That's just like, that's what I get for breakfast some days. It's not immediately dealt with all the time. This is one of the things that Genesis helps. It's to, it's to with a mathematical precision, get into the reasons of why we do this stuff through biblical, through biblical principle and through brain science. What is it that we're doing? And I love that they continued in the teaching of the apostles. They didn't just say, okay, I listened to Peter's sermon, I'm saved, and I'm good. They continued day after day after day. And we can continue in the apostles' teaching. Well, even though the apostles are long dead and gone, we have the Holy Scriptures that they left with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can continue in this. And they, they had the gifts of tongues. We're going to see in the book of Acts that people are raised from the dead. Demons are cast out. People are healed. There's still this 
this this weight, miraculous power that these guys have, but they still don't set aside God. They don't say, give me the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's gifts, and I don't need anything else. They, they have those things. They have the gifts of the Spirit. They have tongues. They have prophecy. They have all the rest. But they don't forsake the Scriptures. They don't forsake the teachings. They don't ignore them. They go to them again and again and again. And Psalms chapter 1 says to us that blessed is the one who meditates day and night on the Lord's law. This is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. You know, and I talk about this a lot. I, I remember when I when I when when the Lord rattled my cage and I realized someday I'm gonna be dead. All of my friends are gonna be dead. And I, I don't know what to do about that. And the Lord said, Me, I'm right here. Ian, it's, it's me. I'm the answer. It's me. It's salvation in my name alone. I found I found one of these in the house where I live. And I literally blew the dust off of it. I ignored it. It's the greatest gift that we have. It's such a resource. Everything that we need to know is right here. Really, we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is good for teaching, for correction, for reproving, for training in righteousness. Everything that we need is right here. Let us not neglect. As a pastor, even just as, just as, even if I was just a glass guy, you know, if I ever go back to being a glass guy, my hope is still that that people don't neglect the written word of God. It's such a tragedy. And we have such access to it. And we treat it like it's a tissue. So often that we just we just toss it out to the side. We don't even think about it. Friends, you're selling yourself short. Put this to memory. The Bible is magnificent. The more and more and more that I dive into it, the more I'm just thankful. That it is here. The more that I just want to scream from the rooftops, it's like, read your Bibles. It's not like a, a mechanical, I gotta do this to be okay in God's sight. It's a gift. And there's and there's more, there's more gifts. It's not, it's not just that, there's more to come. So they they help to the teaching. Things aren't just immediately made better. They continue teaching, they continue learning, they continue. First Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants, they long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, that, that's like, those are, those are such powerful gifts. It's like, it's like stopping to look at the scenery on a hike. My dad was so good at that. My mom and I, you know, whenever, whenever we went on hikes as a family, my mom and I would kind of low-key low get irritated because my dad was constantly stopping and quite literally smelling flowers and taking pictures and trying to like ask him, what is this tree? The bark kind of looks like. And I'm like, who cares? It's a tree. Let's go. I gotta get to like there's a there's a new Netflix I gotta watch. Let's see the top of this thing, get this done and over with. It's so foolish. The fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer that we have access to in the body of Christ is such a beautiful landscape that we ignore. And I know that we ignore. We've been going through Psalms 119 every single day for the past three weeks. And there's not a whole lot of people that come. And maybe it's because people have work. I'm sure that that's absolutely true. But how many people could come and just think, well, I'd rather sleep in? Friends, I, I actually challenge that. This is the only life that we get, and we can be dead tomorrow. And we have access to these beautiful landscapes. And I think that we oftentimes just treat it like I used to treat hikes with my dad. Come on, hurry up, take this over with. 
Yeah, 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 he's making another cool picture. Oh, that, that flower's called Lupin. No, that's not going to pay the bills. Like, like, just stop, man. It's beautiful. There's these beautiful moments, the fellowship that we have with believers, the breaking of bread, going from house to house, the prayer that we have for one another. If you're here tonight and you are someone who needs prayer or wants to, or wants to lend a hand and just praying with the saints, you want to pray with people and be prayed for by people, it's a powerful thing. And we have prayer here every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. and every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. And then there's periods where we do 21 days straight of prayer. We meet right here at the Southeast Building and we pray with one another. And people have been coming for a long time and their lives are changing. They're meeting Jesus. They're developing relationships with people that are going to last a lifetime. This is something that's beautiful and we should pay more attention to it. Not just assume that it's always going to be there. Maybe one day we'll get around to it because maybe we won't. Maybe something will happen and it won't. Maybe something will happen in this building. Maybe somebody will pass away. I, I, just, I just want us to pay attention, friends. And I'm speaking to myself. I've spent so much time just like, ah, yeah, church, church, prayer, prayer. We shouldn't be so cavalier. These are gifts from the Lord. We need them. And it's such a bounty. I, I know I'm going long tonight because I don't have anything. I didn't start it. I went to a dinner last week with some of the guys that I used to work with. And you know, it was such a contrast. You know, I've been in the church for, for years now. And my friends that I used to work with think that it's so dumb that I'm a pastor. They think it's so stupid. They think that it's asinine. They actually think that it's unsmart. That it's actually anti-intelligent for me to be a pastor. The money is not the same. The insurance is not nearly as good. The job security, I don't know, we'll find out. And they're like, dude, you walked away from this job, you're like, you're a pastor now, that's boring, you sit around and read books, you don't even have calluses on your hands anymore, which I am a little bit sad about. They just think that it's just roundabout stupid. Because they like getting coffee from bikini chicks. They just think that my life is dumb. And I sat there at this dinner with them, and I felt just how shallow it was. They talked about shallow things. One of them, their mother had just passed away a few days before. And whenever they got brought up, he just sit from his beard and say, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, she's dead, it happens, whatever. It's just, it's, it's, it's so, it's so obvious when you're in the church, when you're, when you're with people who love the Lord, there's a depth of relationship that is so rich. And being with that group of guys who I love, I love these guys. I worked with them for over a decade, and they just don't, they're so shallow. All they talked about while we were there was how much they hate their job, their bosses, how stupid their bosses are, how dumb that email was they had to send, traffic, the price of gas went up. They just complained all the time. And they're, they're, they're laughing, they're getting drunk, and it seems very jovial. But then I talk about, I try to like bring up the risen Christ, and they're like, dude, shut up. You're an idiot. <laughs> Fine. Friends, my point is, the fellowship that we have here in the church is such a magnificent gift. It's a magnificent gift. And we should be thankful for it. And the Lord didn't have to do that. You know? Don't forsake the assembling together, Hebrews 10, but encourage one another in fellowship. Church is so rad. You ever just, you ever just stop and realize that? It's just, it's, it's rad 
that we have this place that we can come to, we can get prayer. We all, we, you know, 15 or 20 of us go out to the Baghdad or to Sweeter After on Sunday nights, and we, and we pray for them and talk about our lives. And it's, and it's really a blessing to do so. And so this is one of the landscapes, one of the beauties of the church. And now these guys mentioned it. So they went from calling out for Jesus' blood to entering into fellowship with people under the name of his blood. So fear came upon every soul, and many signs and many wonders were taking place among the apostles. And those who would believe were together and had all things in common, and they so, so they began selling their property and possessions, and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have. And they were daily devoting themselves one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. This uh, 44 to 47, this selling of possessions and this giving up, and this, this, this teaching here, this, this reality here, this practice here, has been used by many to, to point at the Bible and say, well, see, there's the proof Jesus was a socialist, and we should all be socialists. And, and, I, and I, I want to pause and actually clarify this, because the thing is that this isn't socialism, first of all, and second of all, it's actually something a lot cooler than socialism. This isn't a state legislative thing. This isn't a requirement that everyone's going to put all of their resources into one pot and everything's going to be distributed equally by a few trustworthy people, whoever they might be. What this is, is individual and voluntary benevolence, which is far more enriching. It's, it's not people who are required to do this, but out of, again, out of love and out of bounty. Christians don't, the, the danger with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teaching is that it's A, not the gospel, and B, Christians, the real, the real gospel, Jesus Christ himself, gives us him, gives us him. We don't need health, wealth, and prosperity to be okay. We don't need health, wealth, and prosperity to, to worship. We don't need health, wealth, and prosperity to be joyful and to be content and praise God because health, wealth, and prosperity all are going to go away. All of those are idols that are decaying. We don't need them. And this is a group of people who are giving up what they can to help those who are actually in need. But the Bible calls us to work very, very hard to be able to do that. The Bible actually instructs us, instructs us to work Diligently, not only economically with some sort of job where we're gainfully employed, but also spiritually. First Thessalonians 4 11 says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as you have instructed you. Second Thessalonians 3 10, If anyone is not willing to work, do not let them eat. For we hear that some of you are in idleness and are not busy at work, but are busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to, and to eat their own bread. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor do an honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with the one who is in need. Giving to legitimate need is a tenet of Christian faith. It's something that we absolutely do. It's, we're commanded to do it, and we're called to do it just out of joy and out of worship. Jesus put everything down. He set his crown aside and entered into human suffering for our need, for our good. There's no one who laid aside more than Jesus. And Jesus, people do the same thing. Not, we're, we're not to be 
of weight on somebody unnecessarily. And if there's if there's a situation, if there's people who can't work because they're sick, can't work for gainful employment for one reason or another, there's no shade there. There's no shame at all. No shade and no shame. But a guy like me, or a guy like Nick Mariakis, or a guy like Sam Tucker, is just like, I'm, I'm just going to hang out and I expect someone else to feed me. That's not what the Bible calls us to. That's not somebody who's in need. That's somebody who, second Thessalonians, needs to get a job. So that not only is, is, are you not a, a, a weight on somebody else's shoulders, but that you're actually someone who can help add to the bounty. So that you can help be, so that you can help with her human flourishing. So that you can help give to those who are made. Some of you in this room gave great, you, you gave massive, massive generosity when Angie and I had Ella, when Ella was born. You showed up and you gave us homemade meals, you gave us clothing, you gave us, some of you gave fruit that you picked off of your own fruit trees. That is the sort of thing, it's a small example of what's being talked about. Be somebody who works hard. The Bible says work hard. If you're not willing to work, don't eat. You earn your keep. But then you take that bounty and it gives you a, something that then you can give back to others. Not to hoard it, but to be gracious like your God is gracious. And it says here that they went from house to house breaking bread. So there's plenty of people who didn't sell their house. This isn't, this isn't a demand to go into poverty collectively. It's a demand. It's a command. It's a, it, is, it, is a, it is a command to, to give graciously to those who are in need. And that is a beautiful thing to do. And it's, it's a favorable thing. And the world sees it happens. The, the history of Christianity, you'll see when you read the pages of history that Christians were known because they didn't just throw their sick off the cliff. They actually helped take care of them. They didn't just desert their elderly. And they even took in the sick and the elderly from other communities, from other cultures. Other other people groups who like the Spartans. So if you were if you were born a small baby, they just they were they were a warrior mentality. If you weren't able to take care of yourself, if you didn't look like you were going to be able to bench press 350 one day, they just threw you into they just threw you into a they just killed you. And the Christians would take actually take those babies in. They would take the sick in. This is a good thing. It's a favorable thing. It's a beautiful thing. And people took notice. Christians gathered together. They shared their resources. They took care of one another. They worked hard so that they could continue to take care of one another. And people saw it. Verse 47, they were praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said to the Father, May they be one as we are, as we, as we are one. I mean, it, it, it looked, just take that this week. Think about it. There's, there's a lot of here. There's, there's, there's a lot of commands. There's a lot of ways to live. There's a lot of caution. There's, there's a lot of instruction in these passages. And that will continue to be the case throughout the entire book of Acts. Because not only is it the curriculum, but the curriculum is the content of the gospel itself, but it's also the ways in which the gospel is lived out. And the Bible, throughout the entire New Testament, has a lot to say about the things that we actually do day by day in our family, in our marriages, in our churches. And that's what we're starting to see. 
is this nuts and bolts reality. How does Christianity actually get lived out in real life here and now? We're beginning to live that. But we can never forget that all of this is predicated on the fact that Jesus Christ lowered himself. He set aside his riches. He set aside his bounty. He took on human flesh. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what we need to go to again and again and again. Whenever they continually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, we have to do the same. We have to continually devote ourselves to who Jesus is and what he has done. And only then can we can we contend with the world in a proper way. Only then can we go out into, into society and show them who Jesus is. We, we need to remember ourselves. And it is easy to forget. We're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those are powerful, powerful realities. But the world sees it. Be one as we are one. Jesus was with the Father for all of eternity. I mean, I don't even, the, the frustrating thing is that there's a, we, that's part of the mystery of, of Christianity. It's part of the mystery of the, of the bounty of the gospel. Is that we are united with Christ. We are one together as God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit are, are, are one simultaneously three. So, so are we. We're a body. United in the same way that, that the Trinity is. That's, that's why it's that's why. That's going to take all, all of our lives and into eternity to understand. But that is the amazing grace that we're seeing unfold here. Jesus is good and He is gracious. And His grace is amazing. And it affects, as we're going to see, every aspect of our lives for the better. Amen? Amen.